Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Tonight we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. And what we're going to be looking at are Paul's final words to the church in Ephesus. So if you'll turn to the chapter 6, and I'll, I'll read the full text to begin with, and then we'll go through uh, various parts of it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist the, the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness uh, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, given to, uh, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Uh, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Would you pray with me at this time? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together to read and study your holy word. Open our eyes to see your word. Open our ears to hear your word. Open my mouth to speak your word and open our hearts to receive your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is a little bit different lesson than, you know, preparing for a Sunday school lesson. When you prepare for a Sunday school lesson, unless you, you know, if you really want to be fancy, you can do slides and things like that. I'm typically not that fancy. And I typically don't title my lessons. So uh, when I got a text from uh, Matt Hazelwood, I'll call him Music Matt tonight, maybe. maybe. Uh, but anyway, when I, when I got a text from Matt and he said, what's the title of your sermon? I don't. I don't know. I don't do that. 
so the only thing, uh, the subject, as you can see tonight from our singing and, and from part of the text, is we're going to be talking about war. So the only thing that came to mind was the uh, 70s folk song, uh, War, What Is It Good For? Absolutely nothing. Now, I don't know why that came to mind, but that came to mind. Um, but in, in using that, the context of that, uh, I'm sure in uh, the Vietnam era, that was uh, kind of a predominant thought, that there was, there was nothing good about war, war was good for nothing, and so forth. Uh, we're going to see Paul talk about war in a different context tonight. Uh, so that's why I entitled the sermon, War, What Is It Good For? Absolutely everything. So we're going to change it up from, uh, from that aspect a little bit. There'll be four points that I'll go through tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about a little bit on what is war. Uh, second part that we'll talk about is who are we fighting if we're in a war. The third part that we'll talk about is what is our battle plan? How do we fight? Uh, fourth part that we'll talk about today is, is a call to action that, that Paul gives us towards the end of, this, um, of these chapters. You'll notice in the beginning of the verses that we read tonight, the first word that Paul uses in verse 10 is finally. Why is he using the word finally? Well, these are his last words um, to the church in Ephesus. Uh, if you have an outline, I don't know, maybe your Bibles have an outline. My Bible has a really good outline for the book of Ephesus, or book of Ephesians. And, and you'll notice uh, that the first three chapters that uh, we went through in these series and that Paul talks about to this church, he's really emphasizing God's role in church, uh, God's purpose for the church, predestination, redemption, inheritance, resources in Christ, new life in Christ, God's fullness for the church, God's plan for faithful living in the church. So he goes through uh, the first part of this letter talking about many aspects of the church. And then he gets into things like this, walking in love, Christian living, living in light, walking in wisdom, filled with God's spirit, if you'll remember those things. And then he gets, starts to get a little more personal. So you can see this hierarchical um, viewpoint that Paul is using as he goes through these different aspects. And he talks about husbands and wives, parents and children, uh, employers, and, employers and employees. And then we get down tonight to uh, really aspects for individual believers. These things that he talks about, it's a matter of importance and final admonishment. Paul's giving these final thoughts and advice and warnings to the church. When I think about this, you know, when you think about um, a, a letter to a loved one or your, your final words to a loved one, you know, what would your words be? The final words that you got to give people that you cared for and that you loved. Um, something like, you know, take care. I love you. Take care of one another. Don't do stupid things. That was my father-in-law's favorite thing to tell his grandchildren. Don't do stupid things. Uh, be ready. Be watchful. Be mindful. And so those are kind of some of the things that Paul is going to talk about today. But he's going to talk about that in the context of spiritual warfare. As I was preparing this, and you can see from the, from the music we went through tonight, I think those were perfect songs uh, for Paul's theme here in talking to the church in Ephesus. Uh, talking about warring with uh, Satan and his schemes. Uh, the great thing about these songs, and, and not that it's not revealed already, but the great thing is, is that we know that this is a battle that's already won. Amen? And, and I love that aspect of it, that this is a battle that's already been fought and won for us. Uh, it doesn't mean that we won't go through it um, and that there won't be trials in that regard, but this is a battle that has already been won for believers. Um, but 
my generation, uh, and even younger, I, I was thinking of this as, as I was preparing for this, what, what is war and, and what do we know about war? Now, when I look out the congregation tonight and the people here, I can see some of you guys that would know a lot more about war than I would. And you would definitely know a lot more about war than my children do. Thank God for that. Um, but when Paul is talking about this, and he's talking to the church in Ephesus, and he's talking to the Hebrew, Hebrew congregation, and he's probably talking to some uh, Roman citizens that happen to be in this congregation, these people in this day and time, they understood the concept of war a lot more than I think we do in our generation. And my point in all this is that when we don't understand the context of things, sometimes I don't think we heed these warnings quite the way the early church would have. And I think that that's a point we need to make here. But So um, the people that Paul is talking to, uh, Hebrew people that would have been there, did the Hebrew people know about war? Absolutely, the Hebrew people knew about war. Back in Exodus 15, uh, we can read, um, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Sounds like those people know and are familiar with war. Also in Isaiah, we can read Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Again, people familiar with the concept of war and when uh, Paul starts talking about these aspects of war and the battles that they're in, I think, you know, these people at this day and time see this in, in perfect context. What about uh, King David? Uh, did King David know about war? Absolutely he did. Second Samuel uh, 22, we read this from David. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. My, to my God I called. Uh, later in 30, uh, verse 34 in that chapter reads, He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. The, um, if we can pull up now, can we pull up that picture? There we go can't see this very good, but this handsome guy is uh, my great uncle Eddie, Eddie Atkins. Uh, he grew up in Montague County, Texas. Um, growing up, I just knew Uncle Eddie who drove a truck, and he never really talked about much. He certainly didn't talk about his uh, familiarity with war. Uh, but my uncle Eddie, uh, under the name Albert E. Atkins, Albert was his first name, uh, he is a member of the uh, Ranger Hall of Fame. And the, the reason he's a member of the Ranger Hall of Fame, it's kind of hard to read there, but um, 
so he uh, entered World War II. Uh, he was at D-Day with the Rangers at uh, two different pronunciations for this, either Pont du Hoc or Pont du Ho, depending on which um, interpretation you read. But if you know that story at D-Day, the Rangers at Pont du Ho, I say Pont du Ho, uh, what they did is that uh, as they uh, drove their boats up onto the beach, there was very little beach there, and at Pont du Ho there were cliffs, and their, their task was to uh, fire grappling hooks and raise ladders up onto these cliffs as the Nazis shot at them. And uh, their point and their mission was is that there were really big guns, so they thought, that were stationed up on top of these cliffs. cliffs. And that was their um, first mission was to dismantle those guns so that they couldn't be fired down on the other troops as they were uh, coming onto the beaches of, of Normandy that day. And when they got to the top of the cliffs, what they found was is that the uh, Nazis had actually um, been afraid that this might happen, and so they had moved these guns uh, miles back from the beach and had, had left uh, trees painted with black tar paint there to, to mimic cannons. Um, but the saying is, is that he was the uh, sixth man on his rope going up the cliff, and he was the second one to make it to the top of the cliff. So my Uncle Eddie knew about war, and if that wasn't enough, as you read on in there, uh, he participated after that in the Battle of the Bulge. And when you read the history on the Battle of the Bulge, a very, very uh, violent um, part of the war. Uh, he survived that and uh, unenlisted and then enlisted back for in time to go to Korea. And in Korea, he was with the Rangers again. Uh, one of the books that I was reading about their adventures in Korea is uh, he and 21 other troops uh, were parachuted behind enemy lines. And uh, the great thing about that was is it was in the middle of the winter in Korea and temperatures were uh, well under zero at night and they had no provisions for two or three weeks. Um, these are kind of the men, uh, and they're becoming uh, you know, a lot fewer in our generation now, but these are the kind of people in our understanding, our, um, that understand uh, war. Uh, and my point is, is that, you know, from his generation to my generation, and we certainly had wars, horrible wars, uh, but not like that. And so I think when Paul is talking about war today, uh, it's hard for us to take that into context, but we must. We must understand what he's talking about here. He's talking about the type of wars that my Uncle Eddie went through and that King David went through and that the Israelites went through. Like I said, thank God we have lived in mostly peaceful times in my generation. Um, but when we talk about that war today, that's the exact type of war um, that he would have us talking about. And so in that regard, are, are we at war then? Are we in a war? Well, let's look back at 10 uh, through 13 again. Let's just read that again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the, against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. That sure sounds like war. <laughs> that sure, those are, that is language of war. 
Now, physical war, like uh, my, uncle, my Uncle Eddie was in, well, not necessarily, uh, but it is, it is war. And notice that uh, when Paul is talking about the people that were at war there with, uh, he's talking about a spiritual war. Um, here Paul's telling us believers that this is a war to be fought with God's strength. Look at verse 10 again. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is not a battle that we fight ourselves. This is not a battle that was ever meant to be fought by ourselves. This is a battle that's meant to be fought with the strength of the Lord and in his might. Nor, nor would God want us to do that. Um, the God that I am familiar with and the God that I read about and the, and the God that Paul preaches would never want us to be in that battle on our own. For one thing, he knows that uh, we wouldn't withstand it. Uh, but another thing is, is that we don't serve that kind of God, do we? That would just leave us to the devil's whims and, and so forth. We, we, we worship and, and uh, love a God that is there for us and wants to be in the fight with us. Um, Paul is telling us that our attempts to fight spiritual battle on our own strength and might, any spiritual battles fought outside God's strength and might are futile and they're doomed to fail. Why would we want to rely on God's strength and power then to help us in these battles? Well, let's just look at, at descriptions of God's strength and power to decide that. If you turn a few pages back to the beginning of, Ephes of Ephesians as we started there, Ephesians 1 uh, verses 19 through 21 is a very good description of God's power. It tells us exactly why we want to lean on him in these spiritual battles. 19 says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. That sounds like the kind of power that I want with me in my spiritual battles. That's the kind of power that I want to rely on in these spiritual battles. Uh, for one thing, because as we read the description of God's power in these verses, uh, Satan is a very good foe for us in our earthly um, countenance, as it were. But Satan is no match for God's power as it's listed here. Satan can do none of these things uh, that God is described as doing here. Let's look at verse 20 again, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That is power far beyond what Satan can, can bring against us. And, and the wonderful thing about believers is, is that is the exact same power that we have in our daily lives to rely on when we come into these spiritual battles. Uh, King David knew of this strength. Let's look at uh, 1 Samuel uh, 30, uh, starting in verse 1. Uh, now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken, captain, ca taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. 
Men, what would we do if we came into the city of Dumas and we found that the whole city had been burned and our families had been taken from, from us? I think those are the exact same emotions that we would, that we would feel there. Uh, it says they wept until they had no more strength to weep. But David doesn't stop there. David's two wives also had been taken captain. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, as you can imagine, right? For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. The, the people were so upset to know that their families had, had been taken from them that they were going to turn on David because it was his fault that this had happened. And David knows that. But look what it says here at the end of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David knew the strength of his God that he believed in, and David relied, relied on that strength at this time. He knew that uh, no matter what was imposing on him at that time, it was no match for his mighty God. Along those lines, let's look in uh, Hebrews 11 and look at what the author of Hebrews has to say about this. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32 it says, and what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who, let's look at what they did, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Again, all through mighty power of God and leaning on God's power when they found themselves in these spiritual instances and battles. So at this point, we've established that there, we are in a spiritual war and we are fighting. So anytime that you are in a war, it's good to know who you are fighting. So, so the next question becomes then, who then are we fighting? Popular culture would tell us this is who we're fighting. Can we, can we bring up Mr. Homer? Now, God forgive me for using a picture of Homer Simpson um, in this church. I, I promise you, uh, I, I, I swear I remember growing up seeing a Sylvester cartoon um, maybe you Looney Tunes fans can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I distinctly remember a, a Looney Tunes cartoon where Sylvester has Tweety. He's finally gotten him, and he has him in his hand, and he's having to make the determination of whether to finally eat Tweety Bird or not, and on his shoulders he has, you know, the devil and the angel. And, and I do make joke of this, and, and that's kind of my point. Um, this is who we look to be in our lives as Satan, right? Many times. Um, it, it's someone who's just kind of a, an annoyance in our life or someone who tempts us to make that one bad decision. You know, do we, do we finally eat Tweety Bird or do we not eat Tweety Bird? And, and the, the danger in this is that uh, Satan has used this to his advantage to minimize uh, who he has become in our world and our culture. So let's, let's take Homer down. I'm I'm afraid if I keep Homer up there, uh, it might be taken out on me. But look, so let's look at who we're fighting. You know, popular culture tells us it's Homer with this uh, little Satan on his shoulder and an angel on his shoulder. But let's look back to uh, verses 11 through 13 to see who Paul says we're fighting. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against what? The schemes of the devil. Notice he doesn't say scheme. He says schemes. I would grant that you are like me and that there is more than one place in your life where Satan likes to attack you. Schemes. And we're not all the same. The areas that uh, Satan attacks me in my life are not the same areas that he attacks Pastor Matt. Devil has lots of schemes. That's, that's who Paul says we're fighting. Also, let's look at um, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. That's who we're fighting. Against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Um, that's who we're fighting. Um, under In the original Greek... Um, devil was written as Diablos, and Diablos translates as slanderer. Uh, Hebrew, the word used was Satan. That's where the word Satan comes from, is, is the Hebrew language. And in the Hebrew language, that means adversary. What are some other names that we know uh, our foe as? Well, and these aren't going to come up, but I'll, I'll just quickly read these to you. Uh, Job 1.6 call, uh, refers to Satan as the head of demons and minions. Genesis 3.1 referred to him as serpent. Matthew 10.25 re- referred to him as Beelzebul. John 12.31 refers to him as ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 refers to him as God, little God, little G, of this age. Matthew 13.19 refers to him as the evil one. And then we know uh, in the end, Revelation 12, 9 refers to him as the dragon. One of the commentators I studied in this lesson described him as this. He is wicked, powerful, and cunning. Uh, Verse 12 describes him as evil. Verse 11 talks about schemes that he used. I mentioned that a moment ago. Uh, One commentator referred to these as tactics that are wily, subtle, and devious. He makes things look attractive, desirable. He distorts the truth, and I like this as we're referring to war, camouflages evil. Adam and Eve met him. Our Lord Jesus met him. Uh, 1 Peter 5.8 talks about our our foe in this way. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's the truth of the matter of who our foe is. Someone seeking someone to devour. Not the cute little devil on your shoulder that's just trying to tempt you into that one harmless little thing. A roaring lion who's seeking to devour you. John 10.10 refers to him as this. This might be my favorite description of him because I think that it is so accurate. And we so minimize this in our culture today. John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Do you ever think of that? Satan's not just here to sit on your shoulder and tempt you into that uh, one thing that you shouldn't be doing again. He literally wants to destroy you. He literally wants to destroy God's church. He literally wants to destroy 
God's families. Anything he can do to drive a wedge into any of these things that, we, that Paul has talked about in this letter to the church in Ephesus, Satan is willing to do anything to destroy that. This foe that we have in verse 11, it talks about how we wrestle or struggle against him. Now, at this time, uh, and we're going to see this even more here, Paul is going to use an example of a Roman soldier here. But, you know, in Paul's day, as he's looking around, these soldiers would be everywhere. And so he would be very familiar with these, with these soldiers and, and the Roman army and so forth. But the term wrestling and struggle in this day and time and in this age, it was something very common for the Romans to partake in. Uh, they've introduced wrestling, so to speak, in this part of the world. One commentator talked about it th- this way. He said, here wrestling represents a close battle, a personal battle filled with manipulation and strategy. It is hand-to-hand combat. Uh, one of the things Roman wrestlers would do, you've, you've all seen how wrestlers, uh, even in the modern wrestling, will kind of come around each other and they come together with their hands um, one of the things that they would try to do is get their hands on top of the opponent's head and force them to the ground uh, to where they couldn't move and they were disabled, uh, put them in a stranglehold, so to speak. Satan is in a personal battle with you, and he's in a personal battle with me, and he would like nothing better than to put you or me in this stranglehold so that we can't move and we can't get up and we would be useless. In Luke 22, I don't think this is one I gave to come up, but Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, if you don't think you're in a personal battle with Satan, listen to Jesus' words to Peter. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus is telling Peter in this verse, Satan knows you, He knows you personally, and he has asked for me permission to sift you like wheat, Peter. The very reality of our foe today is is that he knows me, and he knows each one of you personally. And he would love nothing more than to sift you like wheat. But the good news is is that the latter part of that verse is, is that Jesus is praying for each of us that our faith may not fail. Okay, so we're in a war. We're in a spiritual war. We have an enemy. We've defined who that is. So what do we do now? The third part uh, that we'll talk about tonight, you know, what are we going to do regarding this enemy? What's our battle plan? Uh, Verse 11, again, going back to verse 11, uh, it says to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, when you go back to the original language that Paul is talking about here, put on, when he, when he uses the phrase put on, this is conveying an idea of permanence, indicating, indicating that this is armor that we will be putting on in our lifelong battle, our lifelong attire. It's something that we're going to put on as believers, and we're not going to take it off. We're not going to take it on, off. And notice he says to put on the whole armor of God. He doesn't say pick the parts that you like, put those on. 
It's not a hodgepodge assembly of some sort of armor. It's a whole set of armor. It's not what we like. Um, I distinctly remember the very first paper I did in kindergarten. And I went to kindergarten on the first day, and we did various activities through that. I had Miss Hamby in kindergarten. And I remember leaving the door of kindergarten on that first day and running out to my mom with my paper in hand, the first paper I had ever done in school, and I handed it to my mom, and she looked at it, and she said, frowny face? Why did you get a frowny face? Well, the reason I got a frowny face on the first page I ever did is because it was one of those papers where you had to pick the appropriate outfit for the day for the little character that was on the paper. And so the little character that was on the paper was a little boy, and he had on some sort of little undergarments. And you were supposed to look at pictures um, on the paper and determine what outfit was appropriate for the day. Well, there was a cloud in the sky, and um, there was a cloud in the sky moving away, and the sunshine was moving in on the day. And so the choices that you got to pick for the shirt was like a, you know, like a little, a little polo shirt. And um, then there was like a little, a little jacket. And then uh, there were some little shorts that you could pick to put on him or you could put on some pants. And then there were some little sandals that you could put on him or, or some boots. Well, when I was in kindergarten, uh, my hero was probably my father. And he was a cowboy. And there was no way my father was going to wear those shorts and those sandals. So as I was going through, I knew that it didn't match because one of the little things you could pick for the boy was like a little rain hat. And I knew the rain hat wasn't appropriate because the big sunshine was coming out. But there was no way I was going to pick that little t-shirt and the little shorts and the sandals to put on the boy. I went with the boots. And just because it went along with the boots, I went on with the uh, sweater and, and the pants that went with that. Naturally, I got a frowny face. Well, in association with the whole armor of God, this is not what you just get to pick and what you like. Uh, this is the whole armor of God that we're putting on, whether we like it or not. Um, because if we don't take the full armor of God, uh, we're in for worse than a frowny face or something like that. Anyway, what is this whole armor of God? Uh, well, let's go over to verse 14 as we read that. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore. You notice how many times he says stand? Did anyone pick that out in the passage? When he's talking about standing there, he's talking about in a specific defensive posture. He's not talking about, you know, as you would stand straight up and tall. He's talking about being in a defensive posture. But to stand, uh, therefore, 14, having girded your loins with truth. Um. So verse 14 there is talking about some sort of like a belt of truth. Now remember Paul's looking at the Roman soldiers. Because in this day and time, if you wanted to look at a model of an army, that was the best example you had. And the most successful army probably in that time of the world. A very, a very violent, a very successful army. If you wanted a model for an army, that's who you looked to at that time. So, so successful in fact that we still look at them in this day in some, some regards, right? But Roman soldiers had a belt, and one reason they had a belt is because one of the things they wore underneath uh, the rest of their suit of armor was a, was a tunic. Uh, tunic was kind of a long-fitting um, undergarment, 
And uh, you can imagine in battle how a long, flowing undergarment might not be the best thing to have on. So they would take up part of that tunic and they would cinch it up with their belt and uh, cinch up any loose-hanging material, uh, pulling up loose ends, so to speak, for battle. One commentator put it this way, the belt that pulls up all the loose ends for us is truth or truthfulness. The truth of the gospel or God's word. Uh, This is an idea of sincere commitment to fight or win without hypocrisy, relying on truth. It's being self-disciplined. It's a devotion to victory for the Lord, relying on the truth of the gospel. So that's what we're going to, we're going to pull up all of our loose ends, believers, with the truth of the gospel. Uh, The latter part of verse 14 then talks about uh, in having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, we can all think of that in our minds, what he's talking about there, right? This breastplate, breastplate that Roman soldiers wore. Uh, it was a tough, sleeveless piece of leather or heavy material. Uh, and the purpose of it was what? To, to protect, protect the vital organs of the body, right? Uh, protect their heart. For believers, uh, righteousness or holiness is one of our chief protections against Satan and his schemes. Putting on Jesus' righteousness is our spiritual breastplate. Remember how many times Jesus in his ministry uh, is very concerned about the condition of our hearts. I mean, wasn't that one of the biggest problems he had with the Pharisees is the conditions of their hearts was horrible and not accepting Jesus for who he was. But Jesus is very concerned with the condition of your heart. And by putting on Jesus' righteousness as our breastplate, believers, we can protect our hearts. Uh, Verse 15 then moves on and talks about uh, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Shod your feet. So we're talking about shoes or boots that a Roman soldier would have worn. Now, Roman soldiers were known for having different footwear than any of the foes they met. And the reason that was is because they would put these nails Uh, in their footwear, kind of like a cleat. And they were the only army at that time known to use that footwear, but they did that so that they would be more sure-footed on the battlefield. Uh, The gospel of peace in this context pertains to the good news that we are at peace with God, believers. This gives us the confidence to stand firm in battle. Believers have sure footing with the peace of God. And remember, we're told that that is the peace that passes all understanding. Verse 16 goes on and says, In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith. Uh, This shield of faith, uh, this is one of my favorite parts of this study. You guys have seen the different movies of the the Roman soldiers and the Roman armies and their shields. That was one of my favorite things uh, in their pieces of battle. Now, these shields are not like the little round shields that you see them carry sometimes. These shields that it's talking about was that their infantry carried, and these were big shields designed to to protect a whole person. Uh, These shields were typically about two and a half feet wide and about four feet tall. Uh, They were made from strong materials, layers of leather that would be interlaid with uh, pieces of wood, and then they would be held together with some sort of iron workings around the edge of the uh, shield. The Roman army was known for being masters of working into formation with these shields. And you've seen different movies where they do this, 
where they move into formation and the front line will have their shields up in front and the guys in the back will start moving the shields over the top of them. Um, and it was a perfect battle formation. When they took these shields uh, before battle, many times that they would soak them in water, dip them into water before battle to withstand flaming arrows. Isn't that awesome? Because what does it say there uh, in 16? In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Um, This faith is our faith and continued trust in God's word and God's promise to protect us from temptation, from the fiery darts of Satan. Uh, Verse 17 Let's look at 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Uh, verse uh, Helmet obviously protects the head. In battle, at this time for sure, and even now, in battle a head blow is often fatal. So you wanted to avoid head blows if you could. Uh, in our head is where Satan plants doubts and fears. Satan would like to destroy our hope in our own salvation This helmet of salvation is our assurance of our salvation. Christians can be strong in God's promise of an eternal salvation. Satan would like nothing more than to have you doubt your salvation and to fear eternity. But we know as believers that we do not have to do that. We know that our eternal salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. Verse 18 is going to get into the only offensive weapon that uh, Paul mentions here. Verse 18, with all prayer, um, I'm sorry, into 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Um, this refers to a, a, a short sword that Romans would use, used in hand-to-hand combat. So using the Word of God, we're to, we're to use that in hand-to-hand combat with Satan. This is the only weapon we necessarily need, only offensive weapon we need as believers. We know that Jesus used God's word to repel Satan and his temptations. Um, look at Hebrews uh, 4.12. And I didn't, I didn't give this to you guys, but I'll just go ahead and read that. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. I love that language, though, for the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. We also know that in the end days, uh, if you look at Revelation uh, 19, 11 through 15, and I think maybe we have this, but if we don't, I'll read it anyway. Uh, Revelation 19, 11 through 15 says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
as believers, we should take seriously the power of the Word of God. So now, uh, verse 18, Paul is going to issue what I would call to you a call to action. And it's a plea for prayer from the church. Look at 18. Uh, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul said uh, something similar but in a different way to the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 5 simply says and boldly says, uh, verse 17, pray without ceasing. It's funny that Paul talks about these things like putting on the armor as it's a continued lifelong process. And he talks about the prayer life of a believer that it's a continued lifelong process, never ceasing, never ceasing. Uh, Why should we pray and pray for one another? Well, Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for me. Let's look at John 17, if we can. John 17, starting in verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In a sermon, uh, a portion of a sermon that I watched from Louis Giglio, um, I don't know if you're you're a fan of Louis Giglio. Uh, In in the immortal words of Jerry Howe, if Louis Giglio can't fire you up, your wood's wet. Um, but he has a uh, sermon that is called Prayer Changes Things. And in that sermon, he said this, and, and I jotted it down because I thought it was just awesome. He said, if we could see what happens when we pray, we would never cease to pray. Our prayer journey is a struggle. But if for 10 seconds God could open up the window of heaven and say, hey, when you prayed that, I dispatched angels across continents. When you prayed that, I shifted kingdom plans into gear. When you prayed that, darkness was weakened and the power of the enemy was destroyed. When you asked me that, a connection just happened across the world. When you prayed that, a door opened across the country. When you prayed that, heaven opened up and God began to move. When you prayed that, dominoes started moving out that are going to move, not just today, but tomorrow, next week, next year, and forever. And if we could just see that for a moment, we would pray all the time. After hearing that, 
I wondered to myself, who was the person and when did they pray to bring Brother Zane here? And who was the person and when did they pray to bring Matt Hazelwood here? And bring Matt Price here? Because someone did in this church pray that. And God saw that through. And seeing these answered prayers in our church, just these three, just these three, why don't we pray more? And why don't we pray bigger? And why don't we pray better? Uh, Ian Bounds was an Episcopal clergyman. I don't know much about him. I'll be honest about that. I know that he wrote 11 books. Nine of them were about prayer. (laughs) But he has this to say on praying. A person who can pray is the mightiest instrument Christ has in this world world. And listen to this. A praying church is stronger than all the gates of hell. So with that in mind, let's take Paul's words in the latter part of this chapter. Let's recommit ourselves to be a church that puts on the whole armor of God and that we will be a mighty praying church that never ceases to pray. Will you pray with me? Father God, forgive us for having the futile courage to take on spiritual battles on our own. Forgive us, Father, for neglecting the prayerful relationship you have given to us according to your grace. Help us to arm ourselves with your word, to be unceasingly devoted to you in prayer. Father, we praise your holy name for establishing this your church, and we ask your continued providence and blessings to be upon us. May all we do give glory and honor and praise to you and your Son who loves us so much. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. FBCDUMAS at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 935 5604. We'll see you next time.